Now this week, as we wrap up this series, we're going to be looking at verse 7. And the things in this verse, they're a little bit different than the other love builders and the other love busters that we've been looking at. Uh, The other love builders and love busters kind of describe what love is and what it isn't. Now in this verse, what we have is a description of what love does. What are the things that love does? So let's look at it. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. And it says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Would you read that with me? It's kind of short. Ready? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, before we get into each one of these individually... There's something that we need to discuss that pertains to all of these exhortations in our passage today. And it has to do with this phrase, all things. You'll notice that all four of these admonitions contain the phrase, all things. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And if this phrase is taken out of context and applied very literally... That is, if you look at it all by itself and it's divorced from its context in the love chapter and divorced from its context in this letter to the Corinthians and divorced from the broader context of all of Paul's writings, it can create some problems. It can raise some questions. I mean, because when we say love believes all things, do we mean to say that, you know, if someone says the sky is green, that love requires that we believe that? Or if someone, you know, says something that is patently, demonstrably untrue, that love requires that we believe that? You know, or if uh, when it says that love bears all things, uh, are we to put up with everything? Every negative behavior that comes along? I mean, you know, what about um, things like uh, uh, child abuse and sex trafficking and things like that? Are we to bear with that kind of thing? Uh, uh, because it says love bears with all things. And, uh, and if you lift this verse out of its context, and look at it by itself, it might look that way. But if we do that, we'll be in danger of making the Apostle Paul say some things that he didn't intend to say. And we may be in danger of putting words into the Apostle Paul's mouth. Maybe even in danger of making him disagree with things that he said and wrote in some of his other letters. And so as we study the letter and study the situation that Paul is writing to and study the people he's writing to and the entire message, we can arrive at this following idea that the meaning here of all things is as, as far as it is possible with us, as far as it can be consistently done, as far as, as it is legal, and as far as it agrees with Scripture as a whole. It's talking about a disposition of our heart, a disposition of our mind. It's saying that love gives us a disposition to put up with things. It gives a a disposition to hope in people, to believe in people, to endure for people. That that's our default setting. So with that in mind, with these things in mind, let's look at each one of these things individually. And we're going to do our best to understand them as Paul intended them to be and how the first hearers heard them so that it will help us to be the most loving people that we can possibly be. All right? So, first, love bears all things. Let's look at this one. Love bears all things. Now, why did Paul feel that he had to tell these Corinthian believers that love bears all things? And the idea is that love puts up with all things. Love puts up with a lot of stuff. And for Paul, this was not just some 
lofty goal. It wasn't just some lofty ideal that was lived out on the top of a mountaintop by some spiritual guru somewhere that didn't have any challenges of life to face. As a matter of fact, Paul lived this out every day of his life. And, and he also lived it out right in front of these very Corinthian believers that he is writing to. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's been correcting them about their behavior and their attitudes for, for about eight chapters here. And he comes to chapter 9, and he says this. I'm going to read a little bit of it, too. Starting, I think it's verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we all the more? And then here it is. This is what I want you to see. He says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. What he's saying is this, you know, Corinthians, you've all really been really self-focused. You've been concerned with yourself and with your own rights and what you should have. And he's saying, look, if anyone has rights around here, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. If anyone has rights around here, it's me. I'm an apostle. I've seen the risen Jesus. He gave me the task and the responsibility of preaching the gospel and starting new churches. He says, and I founded this Corinthian church. If it hadn't been for me, there wouldn't even be a church for all of you to be arguing about. And he's saying, if anyone has a right, rights around here, it's me. But he's also saying, now look at me. I'm not first concerned. I don't use these rights. I don't demand these rights. I'm not first concerned with my comfort and, and, and what pleases me. And he says, I love you so much that I want you to be blessed so much that I put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And that's what he's telling these Corinthian believers to do. If you're going to love, if you're going to be the kind of Christians that are known for their love, then you need to put up with a few things. How many of you, that's your favorite verse of scripture? How many of you in the, woke up this morning and says, God, help me put up with stuff today? None of you prayed that way? I said, well, one. Okay, great. God, help me put up with my husband. No. God, help me put up with my kids. God, help me put up with my parents. Okay. So, and that's how God wants us to be. He wants us to put up with stuff. Someone might say, well, Pastor Paul, what if someone keeps failing me? Well, what does the Bible say? Well, how about this first? We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
If someone fails us, we should do what? Put up with it for the sake of the gospel. Well, what if someone wrongs me and keeps on wronging me and I have a grievance against someone, Pastor Paul? Well, what does the Bible say? Well, let's look at this verse. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. How many of you woke up this morning and said, God, um, um, who have I got a grievance to give that I can forgive? God, give me someone to forgive this morning. And not even a one on that one, right? Okay. But love, if we're going to be the kind of loving people that God wants, we're going to be uh, people who forgive and bear with people. Love bears all things. Love puts up with the weaknesses and failings of others for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. And then the second one is this. Love believes all things. So what does this mean? Now, we already said it doesn't require you to believe things that are patently and demonstrably false, right? Uh, I mean, it doesn't mean that Christians have to be gullible and naive people or people who are universally credulous, right? So what it means is that you are given to a disposition to believe people. That your default position is to believe the best about people. And someone might say, well, Pastor Paul, that's just not my gift. I don't, you know, my gift is to be suspicious. Listen, that's not a gift from God. All right? Uh, uh, and you say, well, that's just how I naturally am. Well, of course it is, okay? All of us naturally have this thing called a sinful nature. All right? It does nothing with God to say, God, that's how I naturally am, right? God is saying, well, I don't want you to be natural. I want you to be spiritual, right? And so if we're going to be loving then our default position needs to be that we we tend to believe people outside the absence of facts and evidence to show otherwise. We want to believe people. How many of you have ever met someone who seems to be predisposed uh, to think people are always lying? Right? Or someone whose heart is predisposed to think that people are always trying to deceive them or take advantage of them or mislead them in some way. You know, when that happens to you, do you feel loved? All right, when that happens in a, uh, in a work situation, it makes you feel secure. When that happens uh, with your friends doing that to you, it makes you not want to be around them. Right? When that happens in a family situation, it makes you begin to be insecure and then frustrated and then angry. People whose default position is to be suspicious tend to bust up and hinder love. But the believing person, the person who would build up and promote love, is the person who not only wants to believe people, but wants to believe the best about people. He's not ignorant of the facts of, of that, that sometimes people do things that are not right, that sometimes people do things that are wrong or selfish or self-centered. We're not ignorant of that. But absent some solid evidence that this person wants to believe the best, this person wants to believe the best of other people's motives and intentions. Have you ever been in a group of people where someone, you know, all of a sudden starts talking about so-and-so and, uh, you know, say, hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? Uh, did you hear what so-and-so said to, to the other so-and-so? And everyone's kind of reacting negatively to all of that and saying, you know, oh my goodness, I can't believe that so-and-so said that. Well, I never thought so-and-so would ever say such a thing. Well, I didn't know so-and-so had it in them. Well, boy, I, 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 you think you know somebody. I can't believe so-and-so would do that. Well, I'm not going to be hanging out with so-and-so anymore. You know, and you ever been in that situation? Well, you know, the person who's motivated by love is the person in the group who all of a sudden is saying things like, you know, I, there may be more to this story than we're hearing. You know, I've been around so-and-so a lot. I've never seen them. I know that they, their motivations aren't like this. You know, maybe there's something else to the story. Maybe we should suspend judgment here. 
you know, until we might find something else out. Have you ever run into a person like that? Isn't that person refreshing? Right? Doesn't that person make you feel love? That's the type of person who builds up love. You know, when you're in a situation where, my goodness, love is crumbling and being undermined, and, and uh, it might be because something is not being fully understood and something is being missed. And, you know, and that person, because they desire loving relationships, because they've got love in their heart, is saying, well, hey, hold on a minute. There might be something more to this than we're seeing. The loving person wants to believe the best about everyone. The loving person downplays the weaknesses and flaws in others and makes much of the strengths and positive qualities in other people. The loving person believes in the best version of everyone that they meet. The loving person sees the potential in others and believes in that. The loving person calls out and calls forth and believes in what others can accomplish and contribute. Love believes all things. And then the third one is this. Love hopes all things. Love hopes all things. And the main idea here is that in our relationship, love hopes for and continues to believe for the best. If you're going to be loving, if you're going to follow the way of love, then your disposition of your heart and mind, your default position will be to continually hope for the best in all people. You know, we live in a fallen world, don't we? I mean, this is not the paradise that God placed Adam and Eve in, right? And this is not the beautiful, awesome kingdom of God that is coming, wherein dwelleth righteousness and all blessings, right? This is a place that is often filled with heartache and pain and disappointment and disillusionment and difficulty and opposition. It can be a place where we often take one step forward and two steps back, right? And it can often be easy to lose hope. You have too many situations where you take a step forward and two steps back, and what happens, right? You begin to lose hope. The loving person is a hope giver. If we're going to follow the most excellent way, if we're going to follow the way of love, then we need to be the type of people who are hope givers. Hope givers are encouragers. They make people believe that things will get better. They help people to see the light at the end of the tunnel. They make people believe that they can make it through their difficulties. They help people believe God is working for their good in all things. And they can do this not because they have some kind of exclusive gift that nobody else has, but it's because they have a vibrant connection with the giver of all hope. They're connected to him by his spirit through worship and prayer. They're connected to him uh, through the precious promises of God, having been in the word of God. And because of this connection with the hope giver, they're able to speak into situations and bring hope. How many of you have ever felt like you're in a hopeless situation and somebody came along and said something that just gave you a glimmer of hope? Let me show you an example of what I mean in Acts chapter 27. Here, the Apostle Paul, he's a, he's a prisoner, and by this time, he's appealed to Rome, appealed to Caesar to have his case tried before Caesar. So he's been put into the hands of uh, Julius, the centurion, and his detachment of soldiers. They're responsible to see that Paul is delivered to Rome. So they all get on a ship, and the ship is bound for Italy, bound for Rome. And uh, so as they're going along, they're passing along uh, the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. And as they're passing along this island, this violent storm 
comes up. And it's so bad that they, it says that they couldn't control the ship and they just had to let it be driven along by the storm. And it was so bad that it says that they had to pass ropes underneath the ship to try and hold it together. And that this went on all through the day, all through that first day and night. And it says in verse 18 that, that they took such a violent battering from the storm that on the second day, they threw all of the cargo overboard. Now think about it for a second. That was the sailors' payday. Okay, so what they were doing was forfeiting their payday in order to try to save their lives. And then it says they continued all of that day and overnight into the third day. And it was still so bad that it says they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now, that would be their livelihood. That's how they get to have more paydays. Right? So all of that, they threw it overboard into the sea because they needed to give that up in order to just try to save their very lives. And so this went on uh, and continued. It was so bad that it says the sun and the stars did not appear for many days, and the storm continued raging. Now, can you imagine for a minute? I mean, I went on a cruise with Jill once, and when the seas got a little choppy, we're like, oh, okay, right? And, uh, uh, but to be in a wooden ship in, in a hurricane uh, for several days, I mean, some of us, you know, get depressed just sitting in our house when it's raining, right? Uh, so here they were several days, not even seeing the sun of Moose. Uh, and, and it says in verse 20, it says, we finally gave up hope, all hope of being saved. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. And I want you to pause there for a minute. If you can for a minute, place yourselves on that boat. And let those words sink in. You've been in a storm hour after hour into days, maybe over a week. It says many days. You haven't seen the sun or the stars. There's a constant swelling of the ocean, waves breaking over the boat. And, and you notice it when the sailors throw the cargo overboard. You know, they're, they're hoping to survive by sacrificing that. And then you notice it when the sailors throw the tackle overboard. And you know it's getting bad. And nothing has worked. Day after day, night after night, you're searching for the horizon, hoping to get a glimpse of land, hoping that you can be saved. But now, finally, after many days of this, you're looking in the sailor's eyes. And you don't know much about sailing, and you don't know much about boats and what they can take, but you do know that look in the sailor's eyes. Suddenly, the sailors have a look of hopelessness. The sailors have given up hope of being saved. The sailors believe that you're going to die. And so it says, finally, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Everyone believes they're going to die. But just then, when all hope seems lost, it says this, after they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whom I belong to and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground 
on some island. A voice of hope. A solitary voice of hope in a hopeless situation. Somebody who knew God, someone who was close to God and who had been talking with God, was able to speak hope into the situation. And then a little bit later, and we think a couple of days passed here, but a little bit later it says, just before dawn, Paul urged them to all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After this, he said, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. 275 people without hope. 275 people had given up all hope of being saved. And one godly person had hope. And not only had hope, but he was a hope giver. I mean, what if Paul had just said, hey, that sounds great, Lord. Great, I just wait for that to happen. It didn't say anything to anybody. Well, he would have gone on having hope, right? But he was a hope giver. Because of his connection to the hope giver, he was able to give hope to 275 people. And I want you to see something important about this. It wasn't like throwing on a light switch. You ever notice that when you're trying to give hope to somebody? It's usually not like throwing on a light switch. The first time you say something positive, it's not like, oh, good, I'm glad I didn't know that, right? And then all is good, right? Sometimes it's just like lighting a candle, right? And having another person light a candle and have another person light a candle. And pretty soon the whole room is lit. So it's not like when Paul gave his first speech here, they all did a big cheer and they did a Jericho march around the boat. Not everyone believed him immediately. Probably the first people to get a little bit of hope back were those Christians that were traveling with Paul. And, and maybe um, some of the soldiers as well. They'd been exposed to Paul and his faith for, for, for a little bit. But it doesn't seem like everybody bought into it right away. Uh, it seems like some time went by between his first speech when he told them the, what the angel said and his second speech where he encouraged them and encouraged them to eat. And uh, uh, several days went by. And in between, there's this incident in verse 30. It says that, Some of the sailors, in an attempt to escape from the ship, let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Now, what they were really going to do was abandon everybody on the ship and try to save themselves. And what this tells me is that they didn't believe Paul's message. They didn't share the hope that Paul had. And it goes on to say this. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Now pause on that for a second. Can you imagine being there with that? I mean, do you think that caused a little bit of tension? A little bit of dissension? I mean, that seems a little bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? Cut the lifeboat and let it drift away. I can tell you, when we were on that cruise, if I saw a bunch of people cutting lifeboats off, that would make me a little bit nervous, wouldn't it? Because the lifeboat is meant to do what? Preserve life. It's meant to save people. 
And that's what everybody wanted, right? So at first glance, this looks a little bit counterintuitive. But think about it for a second. That lifeboat would have saved, what, 10, 15, 20 people maybe, right? But God's intention was to save 276 people. You know, how many of you know that sometimes our own ideas, uh, the things that we can do of ourselves, you know, we get this idea, well, there's all of this stuff that should be done. I can do just a little bit of it here. Uh, You know, I'll just trust in that. But God's intention is always more than our intention. God's intention was to save 276 people. And in that moment, these soldiers were faced with a choice. Here Paul is saying, you can't be saved. The sailors are saying, hey, you know, uh, you don't, don't cut the lifeboat. And their question is, do, you know, do we trust these sailors, the ones with the experience, or do we, do we trust this man of God whose faith is in Almighty God? And apparently they had been around Paul long enough and been influenced by his faith long enough that these soldiers did something that was very counterintuitive and they cut the lifeboat and let it drift off. And now either God was going to save them, you know, or not. Their hope now was entirely in God. And of course, as you read the rest of the story, you see that the, the boat did eventually crash on a sandbar and that everybody caught out and everybody was saved. One person who was close to God was able to give hope to 275 who needed it and see them through a desperate situation. You know, sometimes hope's like that, isn't it? It takes one person to light just a little flame of hope. And sometimes it needs to be nurtured, and sometimes it needs to be strengthened and encouraged. Sometimes it gets tested a little bit, and sometimes you have to decide that, you know, you can't hope in the little lifeboat that you prepared for yourself, but instead you have to cut the ties and completely just trust in God and throw yourself on his goodness and his grace and his mercy. But this much I know, the person who's with hope from God can face the darkest storm. And the person who can face the darkest storm can give other people the hope to face the darkest storm. So if we're going to be love builders, if we're going to build up love, then we need to be hope givers. And then lastly, love endures all things. Love endures all things. Now, when we say that love endures all things, we generally think of the trials, right? And the tribulations that... Uh, we go through, that everyone goes through in life, and, and we think of the idea that, you know, we endure them with the love of Jesus in our hearts. And, and that's right, right? That, that, that's correct. And uh, I think there's some correct application from this verse in that. But I don't think that the most correct understanding of this verse is that. I think that the most correct understanding is the idea that love endures all things and suffers that we suffer at the hands of people for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly the best illustration from the scriptures that we have of this is the example of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, the way it describes this. It says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He endured opposition from sinners. They plotted against him. They slandered him. They lied about him. They tried to undermine him. 
They tried to drive him away. They tried to silence him. They accused him of being demon-possessed. They arrested him. They beat him. They plucked out his beard. They had him flogged. They made him carry his own cross. And then they nailed his hands and his feet to a tree. And Jesus had the power to stop this. At any time, he could have stopped this. He didn't have to endure this. Remember what he said to Peter in the garden when Peter started to defend him and took out a sword and Jesus rebuked him and he said this, Do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus knew that with just a word, he had 12 legions of angels at his disposal. Say, that's a lot of endurance, isn't it? That's enduring all things for the sake of others. The Bible says this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If we're going to be a reflection of his love, if we're going to reflect his image with ever-increasing glory, then we must endure things for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. Now, as we get ready to conclude this morning, I have this thought. You know, the Bible says that, that God is love, and, and we know that Jesus is love. And has it occurred to any of you yet that you could replace the word love in this passage with the name of Jesus, and the passage would still make complete sense? Here, let me show you. If we replace love with Jesus, it would read like this. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know, now the Bible says that we are supposed to be a reflection of Jesus, that we're supposed to be in the process of being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. That's just a way of saying every day we're supposed to look a little bit more like Jesus because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So here's my question. What if you put your name there? in place of the word love. Does it still make any sense at all? Would the passages make any sense at all? If you read it aloud with your name there, would people say, well, you know, that's not too far off? Or would they say, well, that's a little bit of a stretch? You know, or would they kind of like chuckle and laugh and go, ha, ha, yeah, right. I needed a laugh today. So what I want to invite you to do is just take a minute and prayerfully read these verses through to yourself. Substitute what thing there. And ask yourself, how does this sound? What things here sound true? Or at least more true than they were last week or last month or last year. Or what things sound like a stretch as you read them? And then what things make you feel really kind of a little bit uncomfortable? Or is there anything that seems laughable? as you do that. Would you take a minute and just come to yourself, read through this that way and let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart and do that?
How does that sound to you? As we're getting to con- ready to conclude this morning, uh, as we're getting ready to conclude this entire series this morning, I, I just wanted to conclude with this thought. You know, a while back, uh, a couple years ago, I, uh, I visited the Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Have any of you ever been there? It's a tremendously moving place. I would encourage you, if you ever have the opportunity to do that, if you're passing by on the, on the turnpike, it's not too far off, I'd encourage you to stop there and, uh, uh, for a couple hours uh, because it's tremendously moving. One of the most emotional and moving parts of the memorial for me was a wall that was lined up with what looked like a bunch of those airphones, like the back of, a, of an airline seat with an airphone on the back. And as you would pick up that airphone, what you heard was recordings of calls that people had made from that plane that were left on answering machines. Things like, I just want to tell you I love you. I just want to tell you, um, you know, if I don't say it enough that I love you and expressions of love or of p- people trying to encourage their loved ones, you know, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. I just want you to know I love you so much. And it was so moving and emotional. I saw other grown men there, big muscular men. They were kind of like turning in this way to say, you know, don't look at me. I'm not crying. You're crying. You know, it was very, very moving and emotional. And, uh, and it makes me stop to think, you know, what if we all knew that we had five minutes left to live? How would we spend it? I bet you there's nobody here who would spend it calling up people that you're angry with. I bet you there's nobody here who would call anybody up to say, you know what, I am so angry with what you said the other day. I bet you there's nobody here who would call anybody up to say, uh, you know what, where's that $10 that you owe me? No one here would express that last five minutes in expressions of uh, selfishness and greed and all those types of things, all those love busters, right? Uh, I dare to say that every last one of us would be telling someone how much we love them. And so here's my thought. Every moment that God gives us is precious. And we can only spend every moment of our lives one time. And if we would not spend that last precious five minutes of our lives following the way of anger and the way of offense, if we would not spend those precious minutes being unkind or impatient or with someone, and we wouldn't spend those minutes boasting or in pride or or in selfish ambition or reciting a list of wrongs to somebody, then why would we ever spend any precious five minutes of our lives following that way? Wouldn't it be better to look back at the end of our lives and say, you know what? It was good to follow the most excellent way, to follow the way of love. Would you all bow your heads with me? Would you all stand with me and bow your heads?